Hey, that's good. You know, today's um, passage from James leans heavily on the expectation of Jesus returning. Uh, we don't talk about the expected return of Jesus very much, and I wonder why. Some traditions seem to focus really strongly on it, but not us. I wonder if that's because Baptist Christians are fairly pragmatic. The Bible says that our actions should be this or that, and so we kind of go, well, let's just get into the practice of this. Or if I, I, I wonder if it's because as New Zealand Christians, we're not big on stories that we can't hold on to or verify easily. I wonder if it's because as modern or postmodern Christians, uh, we're embarrassed by the idea that something the early church held on to so strongly still hasn't happened 2,000 years later. Maybe it's a little bit of all of those things. Yet the expected return of Jesus is written large across the New Testament and indeed of Christianity and it underpins our future, uh, and, and we must keep it in view. And so I want to do a really succinct summary uh, on some of the biblical ideas of Jesus' return while still covering a whole lot. And in order to do that well, I'm actually going to use someone else's words, not my own, because uh, I want to keep this short. So this um, is a few snippets from the New Dictionary of Theology. By the way, um, just as an aside, there's a whole lot of resources, um, you know, when it comes to understanding the Christian faith. And sometimes a simple thing like a, a Christian dictionary or things, they're really useful to go to uh, for learning things. So here we go. Jesus, in inaugurating God's kingdom, has revealed God's intentions for the world. So these include forgiveness of sins, the conquest of evil and suffering and death, and the bringing of a new order of things which overturns common assumptions about power in society and the value of people. But while there is real evidence of the kingdom's power at work in individual lives and in the creation of a community embodying such goals and values, that's the church, the kingdom's coming remains incomplete. So we await a final day when God's intentions revealed in Jesus will be triumphantly fulfilled. And that final day is commonly called in the New Testament the parousia of Christ. That word means presence or arrival. And Christ will come to welcome his people into his presence. And they will be resurrected, and they will be transformed to be with the Lord forever. But because Christ's first coming has already inaugurated this kingdom, eternal life is experienced by the believer, that's us, in the present. And since eternal life means the life of the age to come, it implies not only everlastingness, but a quality of life that comes from relationship with Jesus. 
the distinction between those who possess uh, eternal life and those who do not will be ratified at the um, final judgment. And believers will enter into God's presence. You know, the, the traditional language of going to heaven is not so securely uh, based on Scripture as usually supposed. The ultimate destination of God's people is a transformed universe. The Bible speaks of a, a new heavens and a new earth. And in their ultimate kingdom, God guarantees freedom from death and suffering, fear and sin. For the rest, this article writes, evocative pictures must suffice. It is a banquet. It is a wedding feast. It is a secure city filled with worship and loving activity. And the passage that we looked at earlier from James uh, has all of that in mind. Beginning with what seems like a really sudden change of tone, if you've been tracking along in James so far, James moves from stern warnings of, of last week's passage to warm encouragements for his brothers and sisters in Christ. He comforts his readers with the idea of the return of their Savior. Yes, he acknowledges throughout this letter, they're facing hard times. And yes, they're struggling to live out their faith just as we do today. Particularly when they take their focus away from Jesus and put it instead on their own circumstances or ways of the world around them. But if only they would center their lives on the person and work of Jesus, remembering that he is working out his kingdom in the world, and he will return to fulfill that kingdom, then life would be as it should for this moment. James tells them as believers that their lives should be marked by patience. He uses that wonderful metaphor of a farmer who is waiting for the rains and eagerly looks forward to their harvest to ripen. Is anyone here a gardener? You have five, six, come on, there's more of you than that. You know, if, if you've had anything to do with gardens, you know that Patience is forced upon you. From the preparation of the ground, which has to be the worst part, to the planting of the seed, to the waiting for that first sign of something to force its way up through the soil, to the plant that becomes distinguishable from other plants, to the flower and fruit or maturity of that plant. These things take their own time. But today, today we want to genetic, genetically modify the seed. We want to fill the soil with extra nutrients. We want to irrigate the ground artificially. We want to control the temperature and the light, all to speed up the process. Not so with the Christian faith, James says. We must be patient. We hear something similar in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 35 to 37. 
So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that God has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. What do you think patience looks like? Well, for starters, I think it looks like kindness. Our church values of being Christ-centered and making room both speak to this. When we are patient, we give each other room to grow at our own rate. And we realize that even as a whole church, growing into the maturity of Christ takes time. Some ideas even take generations to show up. So, and here's the kind of the practical response to that, which James is so loving doing. We don't have a moan when people or things aren't going as we'd love them to, to go. When our expectations aren't being met in each other. Now, I feel like as a church, we do pretty well at this, actually. But it would be good for us to do better. We need to be patient with each other and with ourselves as a whole. We recognize that the judge of all things is standing at the door. And as we've been reminded uh, from previous passages in James, it is Jesus' place to judge his people not ours. We see this general attitude toward others from from other parts of Scripture too. I think of Galatians 5, uh, verse 14. For the whole of the law can be summed up in the one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You'll remember that as pretty much a direct quote from Jesus. And then again, a direct quote from, from earlier in Scripture. It comes up time and again. Uh, Same chapter, verse 26, let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. 1 Peter 4.9, in the sense of kindness, cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. Very practical. Matthew 6, Jesus speaking, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. I wonder what God might entrust to us, both as a church and as individuals, if we lived more like this. How do we become more patient? James says it is about strengthening your hearts. And because patience is a fruit of the Spirit, we first prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to grow it in us. And as any of you who have been praying for long will know, if you ask God for that, you've got to be ready for some difficult situations. Secondly, we remember 
the future coming of Jesus and allow that to shape our response to the present. Thirdly, James points to previous believers and to God's engagement with them. And their testimony reminds us of God's ways and his faithfulness to us and others. How many times do we read in Scripture that God is the God of compassion and mercy? And that he is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Our hearts are strengthened when our lives are centered on Jesus in these ways. And then from verse uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, we seem to move from this concept of patience in community to the topic of prayer in community. And James begins with this comment on oaths. Uh, People were in the habit of calling on something bigger than themselves as a security to their integrity. Much like we do when we place our hand on a Bible uh, and make a promise to tell the truth in a courtroom. But James, following the words of Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, says swearing by something else, uh, something higher, is, is bad practice for Christians. Instead, always be uh, true. Just be true. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, he says. Be straight up. Be dependable. That kind of integrity says a whole lot in a world that is always shifting. And as followers of Jesus, it testifies to his integrity too. When he says he's returning... We know he will look at the lives of his followers. When they say something, it's true. He will return, and we are already uh, living in the light of that together. And so I, I, I wonder if there's this image where we as his people are straddling both this world and our experience of it and the next one and our experience of that as a display of something that is to come to those around us. Our lives become a little bit like that bridge. James says for every situation that we find ourselves in, there's an action that can be taken in light of who Jesus is and what he's going to do. And in each of those situations, you know, the Bible tells us really clearly God wants to be called upon. He wants us in prayer to speak to him and invite him into the context and situation we're in right now. I think of verses like Psalm 50, 15. Then call on me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you and you will give me glory. And I think of 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Never stop praying. You know, we're taught to pray with each other in all situations as we live both in this reality and partly in the future one, God wants us to bring him into our present experiences. And one of the most common ways we do that is by praying. It's fascinating when James says that the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Think on that for a moment. The earnest prayer of a righteous person brings 
has great power and produces wonderful results. That person is you if you're a believer in Jesus. It's not about your righteousness. It's about the righteousness of Jesus, which he himself has already given to you. You can take that verse of of James and hold on to it. You know, sometimes we think it's just about the super Christians and the way that they can pray amazing things uh, and, and things happen. But if you look at the book of Acts, the apostles themselves considered them to just be uh, ordinary people. It wasn't anything about them. It was God's authority that made the difference. And even James, in chapter 1, we remember him saying, as one of the most significant leaders of the early church, that he was a slave. It's how he introduced himself. So just like them, that when we pray as simple believers in Jesus, when we have one foot in the present circumstances, and one in the future of God's kingdom, amazing things will happen. Scripture is saturated with examples of people praying and God acting. You remember Jesus even saying, I tell you the truth, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would move. Nothing would be impossible. And talking about this kind of praying, James has this curious mix of confession, of prayer, and of healing. Now, I'd, I found myself struggling with, with that when I was reading through this passage. I remember Jesus talking about people commenting on sin and sickness. And, and he's saying, be, be careful. There is no connection there between the two. And then other times, Jesus did point out the connection between the presence of, of sin and, and illness. And I don't know how it all works, except to say that when we have our focus on Jesus and not on ourselves, we're more willing to submit ourselves to the ways of God and his future kingdom. And so we're willing to make confessions. We're willing to pray. We're willing to believe for God's future reality to enter our present one because Jesus has already made that possible. This kind of mutual living under the lordship of Jesus in spite of our circumstances, is an incredible witness to those around us. And James, of course, turns this again into a really practical outworking. Tying the acts of patience and prayer together, we we are told to gently and humbly pursue each other when someone wanders from their faith in Jesus. We're told to show mercy to those whose faith is wandering or wavering, while also being careful not to end up in the same sins. Again, this is based on the incredible character of God, who considers the lost sheep to be of paramount importance. I remember 1 Peter 4, 8, where we're told uh, to continue to show deep love to one another. 
for love covers over a multitude of sins. Most likely many of us know people who have wandered or are wandering from Jesus. And I want you now to bring those people to mind. This is not us judging their actions. That response belongs to Jesus alone. But with them in mind, I wonder, how might we show them the never-failing love of God over the coming months? How might we be part of showing them that the community of God, and indeed God, is still there for them? This last section in James, I think, has been warmly inviting us to keep ourselves uh, focused on God. Always anticipating the return of Jesus and acting patiently with each other while continually straddling this life and the next through the practice of prayer. As followers of Jesus, we are to be people who are marked by patience and prayer as we anticipate and long for Jesus' return. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your merciful response to each and every one of us has radically shaped and altered our lives, and we are grateful. Help us as your people to be the, the direct evidence of your reality and your life in this world. May we be people who indeed are patient with one another and ourselves. And Lord, help us to be a people of prayer. Use us. Teach us how to pray. Lord God, we ask that the people around us, those we love and know, who have either wandered from you or perhaps never met you, might be freed from those things that held, hold them captive. Lord, we pray that you would contend with those things that contend with them in order that they might be free to come to you. Save them, Lord, we pray.